Okay, so here we are today at the Reclining Buddha in Polonarua, and we've come all this way to pay respect to our uh, teacher, our leader, and you might even say our Lord and Master, the one who guides us, and guides our way, and who we look up to and who we dedicate our lives to. And this is um, quite a significant step that we've taken. It's quite a, a uh, significant thing that we've done to do this, to take the Buddha as our guide even, or more as our teacher, as, as our Lord and Master, or the one who we look to for all of our guidance and all of our, all of our answers and so on. It's this, this sort of thing that you hear from hear about in other religious traditions as well. And for many people it's quite a turn-off to, to, to hear this sort of thing promoted. They'll even think that to do something like this is to follow someone out of blind faith and to, to, to rely on someone else for your salvation, to rely on someone else for your future. And uh, People will, will, will think rather that one should look to oneself. And indeed the Buddha was clear that we should look to ourselves for salvation. And so the reason that, or the, the, the answer to, as to why we take the Buddha as our refuge, as our guide, as our master, as our teacher even, uh, ha has to be explained in some detail. And the Buddha himself was, was quite frank and, and open about this question and quite specific in his answers to this question because he did say attahi atanonato you should be your own refuge we should be our own salvation so we shouldn't look to a Buddha image to save us the question is then why then do we make such impressive magnificent stone carvings of the Buddha why do we even bother or why do we bother coming all this way to pay respect to them what is the significance that they have for us? What is the significance that the Buddha has for us if we're to find the answers for ourselves? And there's a story in the Buddha's time of a, a Brahmin, a Janusoni, who, who had uh, heard many people saying that they, they took the, the Buddha as their refuge and that they, they had held the Buddha in such high esteem that they didn't even feel confident themselves uh, proclaiming his good, his his good uh, vir his virtues, and the so the Brahmin Janasoni he, he came and he told this to the Buddha. He said, "Well, these people are saying things like, you are incomparable and 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 so on. That they have this great respect for you. They see you pay. They see kings bowing down to you, paying respect to you. They see you um, being respected by lay people, by people of all castes. They see people coming and ordaining in the multitudes." under you uh, and and so they, they therefore think that you are uh, they therefore believe that you are enlightened and that you are the Buddha the perfectly enlightened one the one worthy of following uh, one who knows all and, and sees all and, and and has full understanding and wisdom complete and, and perfect enlightenment and the Buddha said well this isn't really how you come to know that that the Buddha is uh, fully enlightened. This isn't really how you come to know the truth of, uh, of the Buddha. 
and this isn't a good enough reason to take the Buddha as your guide and, and as your teacher and, or, or, or even to dedicate your life you know, for certain not to dedicate your life to someone just because you've heard other people esteem him or, or you see other people respecting him and, and bowing down to him and so on he said the he said it's as though it's he gave the example of a, an elephant if you're walking in the forest and you see an elephant's footprint and it's a big elephant it's a big footprint he said well an ordinary person might think well that's a, a bull elephant that's a male the head of the herd elephant and he said but but a skilled hunter wouldn't think that a skilled elephant hunter wouldn't wouldn't uh, wouldn't jump to that conclusion because he would think that well there are even female elephants who, uh, who, who are big and have big feet and so on. And so this might be one of them, this might be any sort of elephant. And if you see the, 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 the leaves picked off the trees or the branches broken high up, or if you see this or that sign, he said none of these would, would lead an a skilled elephant hunter to think that, uh, that this was, or to jump to the conclusion and to be certain that this was a bull elephant. So only when they see the bull elephant and see its tusks and they see its uh, tail and its ears and all the parts of its body that they would come to understand that this, this is indeed a bull elephant. And so he said in the same way, uh, whether, this, whether people pay respect to him or people bow down to him or people say this or that about him or he is uh, skilled in teaching or so on, one shouldn't for that reason come to think that this is, the, this is a perfectly enlightened one. The reason why we take the Buddha as our refuge and why we have such high esteem for him is because of the Dhamma, because of our own practice and our realization of the Dhamma, even basic realization that what the Buddha said is true. Last night when we were meditating in Anuradhapura, during the night uh, a group of people came walking by and they said, oh, they saw there was a monk sitting in meditation, and so one of them came up and kind of interrupted me in my meditation and said, Hello, where are you from? I said, I'm from Canada. And uh, he said, uh, he said, so what do you think of Buddhism? I said, well, I'm a monk. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's kind of obvious what I think of Buddhism. And I said, what do you think of Buddhism? He said, Buddhism is the, the way, it is the best way to freedom. And I said, oh, so you practice meditation? No, I don't practice. And I said, then how do you know that Buddhism is the perfect way to freedom? <laughs> and he was, I think he was quite embarrassed, actually, because really the truth is, how could he know that it's the perfect way to freedom when he, has, when he doesn't ever practice, or has never practiced the Buddhist teaching? This is dangerous. It's dangerous for us to jump to conclusions. And it's not something that protects the Buddhist teaching at all. It's not something that is... You can't protect Buddhism by just having faith. You can't protect anything by having faith in it. If you have faith in the Buddha and you believe till your face turns blue that the Buddha is, uh, is enlightened, it doesn't help you and it doesn't help the Buddha, it doesn't help Buddhism. It just makes it look like something that we follow out of blind faith. And so the Buddha, said, the Buddha gave a, a, a long explanation of how it is that someone comes to realize that the, for themselves and have perfect faith that the Buddha is indeed a fully enlightened being. So he said, here an enlightened one arises in the world, Ida Tathagata Oloke Upanno. 
here a tathagata, one who has gone this, gone in this, in this way, gone thus, gone to nibbana, arises in the world, fully enlightened, and then a whether it be a, uh, someone from from a good home or someone from a poor home, someone from uh, this class or that class goes and listens to the Buddha's teaching and then they hear the Buddha's teaching and they become confident and they become uh, interested in the Buddha's teaching and the more they listen the more they realize that this sort of teaching can't be practiced in the household life but they don't for that reason uh, they shouldn't for that reason come to the conclusion that this is an enlightened one but the interest that they have when they hear the teachings uh, it makes them decide that they, they, can, they there's no way that they can practice this teaching in the household life. This happens quite often. I've taught many people over Skype and this is what you find because a Skype teaching, a Skype course, an internet-based course is, is uh, quite unique in that the person is in general not totally committed to the path. They, they might never even think to to come out to, to Sri Lanka or come to our monastery or go even go to a meditation center near them. But they have problems in their life and so they're genuinely interested in the meditation. Once they begin to practice, it's quite amazing, even over the internet, to, to see the change that, go, that overcomes them. That they realize how, how impossible this is. That they're not able to fully um, dedicate themselves to this practice. And, and more than that, they, they realize that, that the the work that needs to be done, the, the, the answer to their problems cannot come while they're here living in the, living the worldly life and living, or it's very difficult and uh, quite often in the beginning when they said I, I could never come to Sri Lanka, I could never come to the monastery in the end they, they start making plans for when they're going to buy their ticket uh, because of the change that overcomes them and how they realize how deep and how important uh, are the, the solutions to their problems, how, how important it is to solve these problems and how deep the problems are, how difficult they are to, to, to really solve, but also how possible it is. This is the hope that they get when they actually see for themselves through the practice. So here someone goes forth, but another way of looking at this is this is a, here a person undertakes to, to dedicate themselves to the practice, so whether they do it at home or whether they do it in a monastery or wherever, they, they undertake to leave the world, to leave the world behind and not worry about their job or their family or their uh, children or their, 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 their husband, their wife, their, their possessions, everything, they put it all behind. Uh, in favor of learning about themselves and learning about reality and coming to see the truth of life. And so the first thing they do is they undertake morality. And the Buddha uses an example here. He, he's using the, the highest example, and that's the example of a monk. And, and more than just a monk, he's going to, he talks about actually the full course of practice. In, this is in the Chula Hatipadopama Sutta, where he gives a complete a discussion of what it means to be a, a, a meditator, the, 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 the perfect way. So we should understand this to be just an example because there are many aspects of this, this path, even to the point of ordaining, that are not completely necessary. Uh, even though ordaining is quite useful, and, and of course many of these practices are quite useful, they're not all of them necessary. 
But here the, the perfect example is this person decides to shave off their head, their hair and beard, if they have a beard, and uh, put on a robe and go forth and, and undertake the Buddha's teaching in earnest. Because they see that, that, as the Buddha said, it can't be, or as it says in the suttas, it can't be, uh, can't be practiced just like a, a polished shell. It can't be practiced perfectly pure. There will always be spots and stains and, and uh, torn edges. It will not be a perfectly smooth uh, practice if they stay in the home life because they'll have to deal with money and they'll have to deal with bargaining for things and so on. Yeah, today we got uh, an interesting bargain here in the, the tourist areas. Anyway, not important. So, the, so the, this person decides to go forth. And the first thing they do is keep morality. The Buddha said they he went through many of the things they stopped doing. They refrained from taking life. They refrained from stealing. They refrained from cheating. They refrained from lying. They refrained from harsh speech, from divisive speech, from useless speech. Uh, they refrain from so many minor things that monks are, are not allowed to do. They refrain from buying and selling. They refrain from uh, eating in the afternoon. They refrain from wearing luxurious, uh, wearing ornaments and beautifications. They refrain from uh, raw food, storing food, cooking food. They refrain from, uh, from, from, from many, many things. And he goes through this. They refrain from gambling. They refrain from playing games. They refrain from uh, from fortune-telling and so on and all of these things that other recluses, other uh, other religious people might, uh, f might still engage in. They give this up and so their mind becomes calm. They, they take up this practice of morality. And he said that the first thing they do is, is take up these precepts, not to do this, not to do that. The second thing is they become content with their uh, they become content with just their robes and their bowl. And the Buddha gives this exposition of what it means to, uh, to, to, be, to be perfectly content. And he says that we should be content with just our robes and bowl. This is the purity of the monk's life. It's not just about all these rules. The rules are, there in, are in place there to keep our minds, uh, to, 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 to focus our minds, to not... Uh, it's not to give us many, many, many rules that we have to worry about. It's to tell us that all of that is off-limits. To give us a big picture of all of the many things that are off-limits so we can understand for ourselves where our limits are. And to keep our minds within the, the framework of the practice. Because once you give up all of that, once you give up money, once you give up food in the afternoon, once you give up uh, working and buying and selling, once you give up playing games and entertainment and beautification, all that you're left with is the practice. But then the, this, this very, then e even more than that, he goes on to this simple teaching of just having your, your bowl and robes. What it means is living your life just you and your robes and your bowl, which is the simplicity of the monk's life. A monastic life, the, the, the key to the, uh, the, the, the Buddhist monastic discipline is to be content just as you are. So when we, when we come here to Polonarua, even, we even thought to ourselves, tonight we could stay here if we wanted, because we don't have a home that we have to guard, we don't have children, we don't have a place, uh, we, don't, we don't have responsibilities of any sort. We're free like a bird. And this is how the Buddha put it. He said, when someone takes the robes in their bowl, this morning I went through Anuradhapura on alms round. I didn't even need money, I didn't need 
to uh, to, to uh, someone to to bring me food or to give me dana. Just went walking through the village, and the people were so kind to give me some little food that they had in the restaurants or in their stores or in their homes. And just like a bird flying free uh, with your two wings, the Buddha said. So this is one wing and the bowl is the other wing. The robes are there to cover the body. That's enough. It's just a cloth to cover your body. And the bowl is there to uh, give you enough sustenance to continue on the path. This is the second level of morality. Even higher than all of the rules. This contentment, this simple life where you don't worry, you don't concern yourselves about anything. Now, of course, when we have a monastery and we have a meditation center, there are many things that can be involved. When we want to give a talk and, and teach people over the internet and so on, then we need supplies and equipment. But in the end, for our own lives, for, for our sustenance, to keep us going and to keep us happy and content, we don't need luxuries, we don't need entertainment. All we need is our robes and our bowl. This is the simplicity and this is the power of the monastic life. And this is something in and of itself that makes people real, makes people gain great faith in the Buddha. Even when they don't do it themselves and they look at the monks, they see the followers of the Buddha. This is the Buddha said that even by looking at a follower of the Buddha and seeing how well behaved they are, whereas other recluses, well for example, I mean not to brag or, or look down on anyone, but a good, an example that, that, that is a, a fair example I think is there was some strange sadhu, I guess, I don't know what you'd call him, but he was wearing a similar robe and he had a beard and had long hair and uh, I met him on the robe, road and he said something to me and he had a little thing here, I think he was Hindu or something. And while I was going on alms round, he was in the stores buying food. So the, 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 the example here is, is, is the difference. The, the, the point is, people when they see the Buddha's disciples, doesn't no it doesn't mean they're enlightened or that they they've realized the truth for themselves but that they are well disciplined and for this reason people will come to say these people are enlightened I've had people come to me and, and become incredibly uh, sure that that uh, that I was on the right path and that I was some pure and perfect monk and uh, that there and therefore gained great faith in the Buddha's teaching just be by seeing me on alms round or or that I only wear you know, these simple robes and that I, I go for alms every day and that I don't touch money and so on. But the Buddha said this isn't a reason to think that either that person or the, their teacher, for sure their teacher, is uh, a perfectly enlightened Buddha. And this is indeed the case. These people who had great faith, a month later, two months later, they might for some silly reason decide that I'm, I'm useless or that this monk is or they'll get bored or so on, or many things can happen. That their, their faith is, is not stable because it's just blind faith. It's just irrational faith. There's no direct connection between this practice and, and enlightenment. It's something beautiful and it's something wonderful and it's something powerful. And it is something that leads people rightly to decide to undertake this practice. The story of Asaji who went walking through the village on alms, one of the first five disciples of the Buddha was an arahant, and when he walked on alms, you could anyone could see how pure and perfect he was, and so this is what attracted the Upatissa, who later became Sariputta. The reason why Sariputta joined the Buddha's order is because of Asaji. He saw Asaji going on alms round, and he said, "That is an enlightened being," and he was sure.
But of course, Upatissa Sariputta was a very discerning person. But it, it's a good example for us that even just seeing this, seeing this purity, that these these monks really need only this, their robes and their bowl. So this is something that we strive for. And even lay people can strive for this sort of thing, to live. All of you, you know, you've come here. We all slept last night under the under the Chaitya with uh, Yasa and, and Sumedha who didn't couldn't join us here. Uh, and and this is a great power that we have. Ordinary people can't do this. They would go and they would know we need a hotel. No, we need to go to. We can't possibly stay out overnight in that way. So we have this power of morality, of being able to of contentment, of being able to give up uh, our, our attachments to things. This is a kind of morality. The third level of morality then that the Buddha talked about is guarding the senses. He said then then the noble disciple guards the eye. And whatever, uh, and, and whatever they see with the eye, they don't, and the Buddha uses this term, they don't uh, allow their minds to perceive or to, to go into the characteristics and the marks and this, the, the aspects of what is seen. This is a very important teaching. This is very, very much the core of our practice. This is how we begin our practice. Our practice begins with, let seeing just be seen. Let hearing just be hearing. As I said yesterday, dipte dittamatang bhavisati, sutte suttamatang bhavisati. When we see, let it just be seeing. When we hear, let it just be hearing. And the Buddha said this quite clear in the Chula Hatipadopama Sutta. He doesn't uh, pay attention to, he doesn't uh, allow his mind to conceive the, the characteristics of what is being seen. So if it's something that normally would seem beautiful, still just see. If it's not something that would be ugly, still just see. And eventually through our practice the mind comes to this, that what is seeing really is just seeing. And all of the aspects of good, bad, me, mine, and so on disappear. With the ear, whatever sounds are heard, whatever. With the nose, whatever s smells are heard, it's just smelling with tastes, whatever tastes we taste are just tasting. When we're eating our food, we become aware tasting. We know that this is a taste. When we feel something on the body, whether it be hot or cold or hard or soft or some pleasurable feeling or some painful feeling, we know it just as a feeling, whether it's painful or pleasant or so on. And thoughts as well, whatever thoughts we have that are pleasurable or, or uh, displeasurable or, or unpleasant, uh, we know them just as thought. And this is where our practice begins. This is the, actually the, 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 the moment that, mindful, uh, that concentration turns, uh, morality turns into concentration. So this is the highest form of, of morality. It means guarding the senses. So that, and he says, because if we didn't do that, there would arise liking, there would arise disliking, there would arise all sorts of, of uh, unwholesome states. There would arise addiction. When we see, then we would be happy about it. We would be ad attracted to it. When we hear, then we would be attracted to the sound or repulsed by the sound. When we hear this noise, then we would be angry or upset by it. When we have smells, a good smell or bad smell, all of us, none of us have showered in a day or more, uh, we have this bad smell and we become repulsed by that. When we have uh, tastes, when we eat our food and it's good or bad, feelings and so on. All of these will give rise to addiction and aversion. This will create great 
This is what creates all of the problems in the world. We think that the problems in the world are caused by conflict, are caused by real problems that arise, or, or, uh, and so on. But in the end, they only arise in the mind. When we take our, an object as being more than it is, when seeing is no longer just seeing, but it's me, it's mine, it's good, it's bad. This is my friend, this is my enemy. <coughs> This is my, um, my, my food, this is my, my body, no? When our body is too fat or too thin or too tall or too short or sh too white or too dark, then we think, of, we, we feel very sad about our body. Or when our body is beautiful, when our body is the right shape or the right color, we become proud of it and we become attached to it. And then we do this with everything, we'll do this with people. This is my husband, this is my wife, this is my son, this is my daughter. And then we become attached, and this is my father, this is my mother. And then when some change overcomes them, then we, we suffer. So this is, what, this is what it means, morality. Morality is to keep your mind from falling into unwholesome states. Once you do that, concentration arises. Concentration is the state of mind that is free from those states. And then we begin the practice. This is how the practice begins. There's morality and contentment, and then we have this guarding and focusing the mind and then finally, just knowing the mind, uh, the, the movements and the, the activities of the body and the mind. And so then the Buddha gets into the actual practice. He says, for this reason, even though then their mind becomes focused, they still don't think that this, they still don't know for themselves that the Buddha is enlightened. Because it's possible that in other, other religions or, or religions that, that where there isn't an enlightened being, that this can be taught or this can be achieved. And then that person undertakes sati and sampajanya. Then they undertake the practice. So once they're guarding their, their faculties, guarding their senses, then they become aware of everything they do. When they're walking, they know they're walking. When they're sitting, they know they're sitting. When they're standing, they know they're standing. When they're lying down, they know they're lying down. When they're eating, they know they're eating. When they're drinking, they know they're drinking. When they're talking, they know they're talking. When they're silent, they know they're silent. When they're urinating and defecating, this is in the suttas. People become shocked by hearing this, but the Buddha actually said, your meditation practice has to go through your whole life. A person who is really meditating should meditate over urinate, urinating and defecating as well. At the moment of urinating, they know they're urinating. At the moment of defecating, this is coming to understand reality because this is a very, very ordinary part of reality. When, when waking up, they know they're waking up. When falling asleep, they know they're falling asleep. Every aspect of our lives, when walking, 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 when talking, 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 you can even feel your lips moving and know that you're talking. When listening, hearing, hearing. When urinating, urinating, and all the feelings and so on. When showering, when eating, chewing, chewing, swallowing, and so on. This is, the, this is how our concentration develops. This is really the, the basis of the meditation. This is how we teach people when they come. What we're doing when we teach you the mindful prostration, walking meditation, sitting meditation, is exactly this. We're giving you simple exercises that will serve as an example for you to then take into your daily life and develop through your whole life until your whole life becomes mindful so that you're aware and, and clearly alert. You have sati, you have uh, mindfulness or awareness or recognition of things, seeing things as they are, 
and then you have sampajanya, the knowledge of these things as being impermanent, unsatisfying, and unsatisfying. Just simply seeing them as they are. You know, the recognition and the awareness. And what does this lead to? This leads the mind to become... This is where our concentration is developed. Now, concentration has the effect of, uh, as the Buddha said, removing the hindrances from the mind. And this is really the most important aspect of the practice, that our practice should help us to overcome uh, the, the kama chanda, the sensual desire, which I talked about in regards to morality. By, what it means is by practicing the morality and guarding the senses and by practicing in regards to the postures and the movements of the body and the feelings and the thoughts and so on, our sensual desire will be, will, will, will be repressed, will be removed. There will be no opportunity for it to arise. Of course, if we stop practicing, it will just come back and will give rise to more uh, projections and judgments of objects. But during the time that we're practicing, it has no opportunity because seeing is just seeing, hearing is just hearing, walking is just walking. And the same goes for our ill will. We will have no aversion towards things and our drowsiness will go away. We will not become uh, uh, lazy and, and, and depressed and, and, and uh, drowsy in the mind. Distraction will go away and our mind will become focused. Uh, we will not have any any distraction or worry about the past deeds or worry about the future. And our doubt will go away. We will have no doubts in regards to the practice. Every time we have doubts, we will say to ourselves, doubting, doubting. And we can do this with all of these, actually. Part of our practice is, is the inclusion of these. In the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha said, even include these in your practice. So not only are we focusing on the senses, we're focusing on... The, the movements of the body, but this is the third one the Buddha said when you have sensual desire, you know wanting, wanting or liking, liking when you have anger, you know angry, angry or disliking, disliking when you feel drowsy, drowsy, drowsy when you feel distracted, distracted or worried, worried if you have doubt, say doubting, doubting, confused, confused or so on. and these are removed from the mind this is the development of concentration. So this is where the Buddha said, morality leads to concentration. So this is our, how our practice goes. Now what does concentration lead, lead to? Well, the Buddha goes on, but I'm, not go I'm going to cut it short, because the rest of the, the, the path is, is, is more or less optional. I mean, this is the, the, the fruits of concentration, that one can read people's minds, remember past lives, fly through the air, that the mind can become quite focused. The, the most important aspect is that the mind becomes focused and the hindrances are repressed. The hindrances are, are removed from the mind temporarily. Because it's these hindrances that the Buddha says in the Chulahatipadopanna Sutta, the hindrances are an obstacle to wisdom. This is the, the, what the Buddha says. What are these, these things? What is the problem with these things? That they are an obstacle for wisdom. So all of these other fruits of the practice are actually incidental. You know, ability to read people's minds and remember past lives. It's not really wisdom. It's wisdom in a worldly sense, but it's not. If you go, if you go through the sutta, you see that even for, the, for this reason, when one remembers one's past lives, when one reads people's minds, even for this reason one would not say, oh, my teacher is enlightened. How could one? This is not real knowledge. This is just an experience of something in the past or something in the future or something external to yourself, some concept. 
And so the most important thing is that one continues the practice, whether one gains magical powers, whether one gains deep states of concentration or not. What's most important is that one comes to realize the truth of reality, that one comes to give rise to wisdom. And so the Buddha said the point at which the person is able to realize that this is indeed, and my teacher is indeed enlightened, and this is indeed a fully enlightened being, is when one realizes for oneself the truth, the truth that the Buddha called the Four Noble Truths, the, the real truth of life which are the truth of suffering, the reason why something unpleasant occurs, the reason why a problem of any sort occurs. It's, these are the only truths that are really useful. If you think about it, you can see that the only, the only really, truly necessary truths for us to realize, no matter what other truths we realize, is the truth of suffering. The truth of suffering in the sense that what is the cause of suffering? Why is it that we suffer? Because if we had no suffering, nothing else would matter. It wouldn't matter whether we could or couldn't read people's minds. It wouldn't matter whether we could or could, could not see far away or so on. It wouldn't matter if we uh, had, had all the intellectual knowledge in the world. Once we understand the truth of suffering, and we understand those things that cause suffering as causing suffering, once we understand those things that are unsatisfying as being unsatisfying, then we will never cling and we will never attach, we will never follow or chase after those things ever again. We become free from suffering. And the Buddha said in this way, he comes to be free from what the Buddha called the asava. That the reason why we understand, the reason why we believe, the reason why we would even take the Buddha as our Lord and Master, it's a very difficult thing for people to hear, I think, is because we come to realize the truth for ourselves. We come to see that indeed, one, it is possible to become uh, perfectly enlightened. Two, our teacher teaches the way to become enlightened, to become free from all defilement. And three, we have for ourselves become free from, uh, have gained some measure of enlightenment. This is when a person takes the Buddha as their Lord and Master. So I'm not trying to say that this, this is about any of us, but this is when, this is how we should reserve our faith in the Buddha. That the faith that we have should be limited to the results that we have gained. Until we realize for ourselves the truth of, of the, what the Buddha taught and the truth of life. And that everything that, for example, everything that arises ceases. That there is nothing in the world that can bring us happiness. And therefore nothing in the world, in any world, any frame of existence, that is truly satisfying, that, that, that should be clung to. Nothing worth clinging to. No dhamma, sabbe dhamma nalanga bhine vesaya. No dhamma, no, no thing is worth clinging to. Until we realize that for ourselves and truly realize it and therefore have no clinging inside, whether it be clinging to uh, sensuality, whether it be clinging to becoming, or whether it be clinging just due to ignorance. These are the kama sava, bhava sava, avijasava. Whether it be any of these these types of of defilements in the mind, whether it be the defilements regards to, in regards to sensuality, all of these are gone because all of the objects of the sense we've come to see them just as arising and ceasing. They can't satisfy us. We've come to see them just for they, what they are. We've come to see that what they are is something very very simple, 
has nothing to do with good or bad or me or mine, pleasant, unpleasant, desirable, undesirable. They simply are what they are. We've come to see this, this perfectly clearly. We've come to remove all of the illusions and delusions, all of the habits that we have, all of the partialities that we have that are based on, on the baseless, that have no basis in reality. Uh, whether it be f in favor of things or against things, we have no aversion towards things as all. We see those things that we thought were ugly or unpleasant or undesirable or, or fearsome or so on are as well simply experiences that arise and cease. Bhava asava is in regards to becoming. So in regards to becoming this or becoming that, we have no interest. We've come to see that anything that we become, anything that becomes, will have to disappear. It can never last forever. No matter what high state of mind we might have, in the end it has to finish, it has to dissolve. When we stop working for it, when we stop striving for it, it will disappear. And so we give up all striving, we give up all clinging, all... Uh, desire for any any becoming or for any non-becoming for getting rid of anything for removing anything from our lives we come to accept what is and be perfectly content with what is or avijasava any kind of taints or any kind of delusions that come simply from ignorance we remove all of these as well so all of our conceits and all of our arrogance all of our our wrong views we remove them as well all of our views, any views that we might have or opinions that we might have, this is right, that is right, this is wrong, that is wrong, I believe this, I believe that, we throw it all out the window. Once we can do this, then we are said to have seen the truth. And it's as though then we have seen the bull elephant in the sense that then we have come to know that the Buddha is the Buddha. We've come to realize that anyone who can teach this teaching that we have practiced and learned is truly indeed a perfectly enlightened being. So this is the point where we come to uh, truly understand and have faith in the Buddha. So all of us are working towards that. We're on the path working towards that. So how we should react, how we should re relate to this, is that our faith for, in the Buddha is is exactly in re should be perfectly in regards to our practice. We all have faith in the Buddha, not because other people have said that he's this or that, or because of how we've seen other people act or because we have faith in other people that we've seen but because we ourselves have to some extent realized the truth of his teachings and to the extent that we've realized uh, the truth of his teachings to that extent we become faithful we've become confident in him and we've taken him as our our teacher our guide our lord and our master and of course the great thing about, Buddha's, about the Buddha's teaching, which re should reassure all of us and certainly reassures everyone, who, who we, everyone that I talk to or, or teach Buddhism, is that the more you practice, the more you want to practice. So you, you, you might have decided when you first came to practice, just come for a few days to try it out. But even when you come for just a few days, after a few days you want to stay for a week, and after a week you want to stay for a month, and after a month you decide you want to give up your life and become a monk. Uh, anything can happen it, it, because this is the Buddhist teaching is opanayiko it, it leads you on it's something that you can you, the more you practice the more you want to practice the more faith you gain in the practice uh, or, or the more you practice the more faith you gain the, the, the greater confidence you have so there never has to be in the Buddhist teaching never has to be never should be and never has to be 
uh, some sort of blind faith or some sort of clinging to faith, that uh, any kind of fear that you might be wrong or, or fear that you might somehow lose your faith in the Buddha. Often I will instruct people to give up their faith, say whatever, whatever doubts you may have, just give them up. Give up any faith that you have. Don't try to cling to it or make yourself believe. Give it up because the truth will come by itself and the truth will, be, will give you an unshakable faith an unshakable conviction in the Buddha. Once you realize the truth for yourself, you'll never have to have any sort of attachment to faith or any kind of clinging to faith. The faith that you have, will have will be based perfectly on, on your understanding. And so that is what it means, I think, for us to take refuge and to take the Buddha as our guide and master. And it's a perfectly good reason for us to make such statues because even from what little we've gained, if you think of what little we've gained of the Buddha's teaching, we, we can see that even that very little amount is incredibly profound. That this little, little piece of the Buddha's teaching, and we know that we haven't made it maybe anywhere near the goal, but even that that we've gained is something that has changed our lives in a very profound way. We used to do evil things and now we don't do evil things. We used to uh, avoid or, or even... Uh, look down upon doing good deeds and now we undertake good deeds. We used to think of meditation as a waste of time and now we think of everything else as a waste of med good meditation time. And so to me it, it's actually not such a remarkable thing to think that someone would carve uh, a rock like this and make a Buddha statue even as impressive as it as it might seem. It's actually for someone who's practiced meditation quite a, min uh, a small task. Carving something into a rock is a small task compared to the task that we have ahead of us and the task that we are undertaking. Even a week in meditation seems to me a much more uh, difficult and much more worthwhile task and a much greater um, greater respect and, and homage to the Buddha. And this is how the Buddha put it as well. And it's great to see this kind of homage being paid, but he said this isn't the true way to find homage, to pay homage to the Buddha. If we think of the Buddha when he was about to pass away, and all the people from all of the country and all of the monks and even all of the angels were bringing flowers and candles and incense to pay homage to the Buddha, and the Buddha said, this isn't how you pay respect to an, uh, a fully enlightened Buddha. But he said, Who, whatever person, be they a monk, a nun, a, a layman or a laywoman, if they practice the Buddha's teaching, yoko ananda bhikkhuva bhikkhuniva upasakova upasikava dhamma anudhamma patipanno anudhammachari samiji patipanno anudhammachari so tathagatam garu karoti sak karoti garu karoti This is a person who does, who acts proper in regards to the tathagata, the Buddha. Someone who garu karoti, who acts with homage or respectfully towards the Buddha. Manyeti, Pujeti, who pays homage and pays respect to the Buddha. Someone who practices correctly, who practices the teaching in order to realize the truth of life. So this is what we aim to do with our practice and as Buddhists. And this is where we should find faith and respect for the Buddha. And this is kind of an explanation as to why we have such homage and such admiration for the Buddha and why we don't spit on the Buddha images as they say or we don't uh, look down on the Buddha in images 
because this is a picture of our teacher. This is our someone who is our guide. It doesn't mean that we take these things as a substitute for practice, but we take these as a sign of honor and respect, and we respect these things and we respect them in place of our teacher who has already passed away into perfect peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. So I hope that has been of some use. Thank you all for listening, and I uh, uh, wish you all and everyone listening in to be able to practice the Buddha's teaching and to find true peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering for yourselves. Thank you all for tuning in, and wish you all the best.